Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 260 and this episode is with performance coach and founder of Peak to Be Elite, Alan Jordan. Alan was on the podcast on episode 134. He was in a different role back then, so it was great to get him back on the podcast and talk about some of the changes in his career, including the new business that he's set up. He's six months into the business as we record this episode. So we talked about that, some of the challenges in setting up, maybe some of the things he wasn't quite expecting in setting up a business. We then spoke about he's getting players coming out to see him. So we spoke about where players need the most support. How does the work that Alan does fit alongside the support that players are getting at clubs? How that looks in terms of the programming as well, where his time is spent with players. We then talked about deceleration. So the importance of deceleration we've spoken about before on the podcast, but this was a little bit more focused around applying that deceleration work into the gym. So we talked about programming, we talked about exercise selection, um, how Alan fits the deceleration work in with players into sessions, what that looks like as well. So loads to take away in this episode with Alan. As I am getting this podcast ready to go out, we have literally just posted our next networking event, which is going to be down in London, in Battersea, at Football Strength Conditioning and Rehabilitation. We have two amazing speakers for the evening. Really excited to see these guys present. We've got founder of Speed by Sportland, Sam Portland, as well as strength conditioning coach, Sam Peeps. They are both going to be presenting for us. Both brilliant practitioners, been on the podcast before. So I'm really excited to see them present at the event and also to visit the facility as well. It's an amazing facility, some brilliant work going on down there as well. So as this podcast goes out, if you go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and then networking events, you'll be able to get yourself a ticket for that event. It starts at the early bird price and then a couple of weeks to go until the event, it will go to full price. So if you're planning on coming, make sure you grab it at the early bird price. We have also... If you're thinking about coming with a friend, a colleague, a family member, there's also a two-ticket bundle available and you do get a bit of extra discount on that as well. So that is on the same point of the website. So go and check that out and hopefully we will see you there. Just another couple of updates before we get into the sponsors. This is a few days, recording this podcast a few days after the Training Ground Guru Conference, which is a really enjoyable couple of days and um, culminating in the, the chat between Tony Strudwick, Tom Little and Dave Carolan. I really enjoyed doing that. Three top guys with an amazing amount of experience. So if you're at the conference, I hope you enjoyed that. We will be doing a, and this is a little insight into what we've got planned coming up over the next few months of the podcast. Jordan and I will be jumping on a podcast soon to discuss some of the takeaways from those couple of days as well. And we are also going to be running a few episodes. We put it out on the socials recently just to say what people like to see. A few episodes just between Jordan and I talking about whatever we're going to talk about. Could be some current trends at that time or just a general catch up. So as well, we are going to keep the weekly guest episodes coming. But we are going to have a few special episodes just between Jordan and I talking about um, like I say, current trends or whatever we've got on our minds at that time. So keep an eye out for those. 
Just before we jump into the episode, I just want to say a massive thank you to our sponsors, The Good Prep. The Good Prep is a meal prep delivery service that provides fresh, ready-to-eat, chef-cooked meals straight to your door. They offer meal plans tailored to your personal goals, current activity level, and schedule. The Good Prep works closely with elite-level athletes and corporates to develop meal solutions that meet the ever-changing demands of performance and training. Their clients include Brighton Hove Albion, the PGMOL, Commonwealth Teams, Gymshark, and many more. Their meals are full of all the nutrients you need to keep you in peak performance so you can achieve every goal you set. Plus, you can reclaim your time, eat better, move more, and reduce food waste too. Their meals are pla- their meal plans are designed to guide you through your journey to a healthier you. Take the guesswork out of healthy eating and discover the power of nutrition at thegoodprep.com and use code FFF15 for 15% off your first order. Also, a massive thank you to Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? For pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure-validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe, and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximize athletic potential like never before. Whether in the changing room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hydro has created a simple and effective tool that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. Go and check them out at hydro.com or email teamsales at hydro.com to find out how Hydro BFR can give your squad a competitive edge. Last but not least, a massive thank you to Rezzle doing some great work in the world of VR. And it was great to see Ben from Rezl present at the Training Ground Guru Conference as well. So go and check them out at Rezl over on socials. And let's get into episode 260 with Alan Jordan. Rezl is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezl Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezl, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 260 and welcoming back onto the podcast. It's been far too long, Alan Jordan. How are we doing? I'm really good, mate. How about yourself? I'm very good, mate. Very good. It's um, Yeah, it's been a little while since we had a catch-up. I know there's been quite a bit going on. Yeah. Some quality stuff as well. Yeah, I think, as we said, probably around COVID time when we first had this, uh, the first podcast, so... Yeah, it wasn't that long ago, but like so much has happened in that short amount of time, to be fair. So it'd be, uh, be good to delve into some of that, yeah. Definitely. But even though we did the previous podcast and you spoke about career, yeah. I think it'd be great to cover it again. So just take us yeah. back, take us on the journey. What leads you up to what you're doing now? Yeah, so I think um, starting right from the beginning, again, typical sort of strength conditioning pathway. So I went to John Moore's to do an undergrads. Then as part of our third year placement opportunities, we sort of applied where we wanted to go. Um, it was the first year Everton Women's sort of held a placement for the students. And I just seen that as an opportunity really to, to get my teeth stuck into a department or environment that was pretty new. I say we're probably going back to 2013 now when women's football was still majority like part-time. Um, so went into to that environment and 
got kept on on a on a voluntary basis, which then led into a paid um paid role. Um and then beyond my undergrads, went on to do a, a year uh, MSc at Salford University in strength conditions as well. So I say worked probably seven days a week to be fair, alongside doing an MSc. Even though it was classed as a zero or a contract, we all know what those <laughs> contracts look like. You know, so there was times where I'd be travelling away with the under seventeens on a Saturday morning to say Birmingham, and I'd get dropped off on the M six to then get picked up by the first team bus going back down south <laughs> on Sunday. So and then getting back early hours Monday morning. So that was sort of a year grinding out really while getting me MSc, and then fortunately enough. Um, I was approached by Liverpool women, um, new manager in charge. He wanted his new sorts of staff in, in place, etc. So I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to go in there. That was a full-time job. So obviously salary, full-time, I was, you know, buzzing with that sort of salary at the time. I think <laughs> we looked at that salary now, I wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> but um, at the time, it was, it was great, you know, just, you know, finishing that MSc, just wanted that full-time opportunity. So it was a great sort of, opportunity to go in, put my stamp on things, um, work in a new sort of staff and structure environment to, to sort of, you know, find my feet, I suppose. You know, at that stage, I'd only been involved at Everton Women for about 18 months to two years. Um, so still very young and new to the SNC world. Um, and I must say that first year at Everton, actually my first full-time season at Everton women we got relegated <laughs> so that was like that was a massive learning curve for me like to go in in that environment working with the first team everything all the eyes are on you sort of thing and then we get relegated so that was like I probably took more away from that year than than any other year to be honest with you because of probably the things that I didn't know but learned on the job Um, so that was a huge learning curve but yeah back to Liverpool so was there for four years and then seeking the opportunity, sort of coming out of the the footballing world to go and work for a company called Game Changer Performance, who work alongside the PFA Rehabilitation Scheme at St George's Park, um, and spent the best part of two years working there as well. Um, again, working solely in in smaller smaller numbers, one to one mainly, one to two, dealing with a ridiculous amount of injuries on a yearly basis. So we'd get anywhere between 300 and 350 footballers coming through that programme on a year. Um, so, you know, every injury probably we probably sort of encountered um, on a yearly basis. But again, sort of specialising in that rehab, um, in that rehab sort of area for a few years. Because obviously in, in that sort of team setting at Liverpool, you become a bit of a... And I've heard this phrase used by some of the FA staff, it's like a general specialist where you have to be good at everything because you're the sole member of staff in that in that department where you know you're probably looking at bit after bits of nutrition, and uh, rehab, gym, pitch preparation, match day, training warmth, everything. You you're the guy or girl. Um so that was again, it was nice to just come off that environment and actually focus on an area where you can sort of sharpen your tools. So I say spent the best part of two years out there. Um, I was commuting, still living in Liverpool, so that was you know that took its toll to go into a jet. Um, I think I was doing nearly seven hundred miles a week. So I think at that point, um, I was probably ready to come and move closer to home. And luckily enough, I was approached for a role um at a new facility in the book called Real Performance. Um, and again, love my time there. Listen, I spent the best 
again, 18 months I probably spent there and probably working at GCP combined with R4P probably just under four years. It probably started to, I don't know, maybe ignite a little bit of a fire in my belly to go and probably do something for myself, which I probably never thought of prior to those opportunities, to be honest with you. And if you would have said this to me at the beginning, that sort of career pathway at Everton, you're going to go and work for yourself in 10 years' time. I probably would have said no. Like, I, I want to work for a club. I want to try and work as high up the football ladder as possible, really. So, um, so yeah, I got to around the year mark at R4P where I was like, okay, well, where do I want to see myself in the next two to three years? And um, having built up a huge relationship with, you know, coaches, staff, players, organisations over over the last 10 years, I felt it was the right time to sort of put my stamp on things and, and launch my own business, which was which was Peak to Be Elite, which I launched six months ago. Um, so that's where I am at now, really, is, you know, going through the whole sort of team structure into private sector, then flying solo and, and launching my own business. I wanted to touch on this now. So launching the business, obviously, when you've got the business idea in your head, you might have a business yeah. plan. It's all planned out. It's all linear as well, isn't it? Like I'm doing this <laughs> and this and it leads to this. You get the business going and it can be quite different, can't it? So what have been some early lessons for you in the first six months? I know you've had loads on, but what have been some key takeaways in that time? I'm pretty I'm pretty hard on myself in terms of like, I expect everything to be perfect straight away. So that's probably been the hardest thing for me to to manage is my own expectations of where the business is right now and where I see it going or or where I see it progressing. So um as I say, I was fortunate enough to have in the private sort of sector at RFLP, you, you build your own client base, you know, you, the the people are coming into that facility to work with you. Um so I was fortunate enough that when I left, like a lot of the clients that I was working with wanted to continue working with me. Um so it wasn't like I was starting from from scratch, etc. So I had ambitions of having a mix of in-person and online coaching. And that was what I set out, having a bit of a hybrid delivery. Um, but I think over time, the in-person stuff has started to reduce, mainly probably because of the time of year as well. You know, the off-season when I launched was ridiculous. <laughs> I probably launched at the best time possible for the business, being it like the off-season and, and footballers wanting to get in and do a lot of one-to-ones, etc. So that died off obviously when the season started and then the online stuff is then taken off. So um, biggest challenges, I think, yeah, managing your own expectations, time management is huge. Um, you're probably going to be working a lot more than you ever worked working for someone. No, not that I didn't ever think that was going to be the case, but probably not to the extent. And I don't know what you think, because you, you might you might experience yourself, is you, you don't see it as work as such. Like, I can be working 10 o'clock at night on a laptop and my missus be like, you work all the time? I'm like, no, I don't. Because <laughs> I generally don't realise I'm working. Um, yeah. um, just because, you know, it's it's just something that you don't need to do. It falls on yourself. You know, if you've got a family and other commitments, then, you know, if, if you're not going to do it, no one else is, essentially. So I think that, that's been huge for me, is managing my own expectations, managing my time, um, but also just going with the flow of the business because what you initially set out, um, what you perceive your business to be may change over time um, and not to be so sort of regimented and structured in your approach to to what's out there in terms of opportunities. So, you know, as I say, we've 
we've been quite lucky to enough to like to, to take on some extra staff at the minute just because of the demand on the on the online service. So that's been interesting in terms of working with other staff members and actually being the person that pays these members of staff. Um but then also looking at, you know, revisiting potential opportunities that you may have felt were dead in the water from years ago. So I think we mentioned this before before we come on calls, like I've probably you know, build relationships in the past, going back five, six years ago that have gone full circle now. And I'm actually working with those people again because of the relationships and, and trust that built all those years ago. And that's been really pleasing, knowing that you shouldn't burn bridges. Um, you know, in in every walk of life, you're probably always going to cross paths with someone again. So I think always leaving a good impression. And most of all, not being a dick and being a good person will go much further than, than anything, really. People want to invest in you rather than what you can do the majority of time because you know if you're a likable person and you're trustworthy then yeah as i said that that'll probably go a lot further than um some of the work that you're able to do and we, we were talking about it as well weren't we? and i don't think you realize it at the time especially in your first few roles where you've got ambitions of whatever that is going to be probably working at a first team somewhere yeah probably premier league mm-hmm. um that's generally what coaches looking at isn't it I want to work through my career I want to just get to this opportunity as quick as I can yeah. without realizing that when you're surrounded by all these staff that one there on a on a career pathway of some sort yeah. and you're going to cross paths at some point but I think that's a really key takeaway isn't it for younger coaches but I think any coaches of any age like yeah. you can you'll come across people again and opportunities can come about from people that you don't expect as well yeah, and word of mouth is huge, mate. Like, if you make a, you know, a good impression on working with one player, like, you know what's like the football community is so small. Like, yeah. most, the majority of players have played with each other or know someone in some capacity. And footballers, are, I would say, they, they, they probably take a while to warm to someone and trust someone. Um, so I feel like that's where I've been really successful is building you know, relationships with a lot of players over the years have, again, come full circle based off their recommendations or doing a, a really good job getting a player back to full health or whatever. Like, those sorts of relationships and, and contacts are huge, especially when you're running your own business as well. What about in terms of business strategy, like goal setting? I know you just mentioned there about it's tough for you, and I find it really hard as well in terms of looking... If people say, like, what's your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, you're like, yeah. I don't know, like, it's going to take... <laughs> I'm just going to try and get through my to-do list for the day like, and then see what happens. But what, how do you find that? Yeah, I'm the same, to be fair. I think you've all got, you've probably got a pinnacle of where you want the business to be in five years. And I think whether you're ever going to reach that is probably a 5% chance. But I think if you can get as close to that as possible um, over a five-year plan, then I think that's, a really good place to aim for, maybe setting unachievable targets almost. So, you know, if you do fail, then you're still in a much better position. I think when I first started out um, for the business, I've always had ambitions of of going abroad. Um, So I wanted to sort of build a business that would enable me to do that. Um, Do you mean live abroad? Live abroad, yeah. Live abroad and work abroad. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why, for me, like the online stuff is, is huge. Um, but also moving to a location where I can still have a huge presence within like one-to-ones. Um, so that is sort of my potential five, ten-year goal, we'll see. Um, but yeah, everything that I'm putting in place now is is geared towards is geared towards that. 
I think that's a really important point, though, isn't it? And it ties in with a lot of the work that um, we've had people like Dan Howells and Josh Fletcher on the mm-hmm. podcast talking about this sort of stuff, that you're trying to align your values to what your career's saying. Yeah. So your a target like that is a personal target, but it's also mm-hmm. falling in line with the career as well, isn't it? You exactly. know what you're going to have to do now, or at least you can plan to, in some way, shape or form to try and end up there. And that took probably 10 years for me to get to that point. Yeah, you, you know, it's 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 gone through, as I said before, like that those days of doing seven days a week, doing an MSc, being away all weekends, living your life around a team and football structure, to then obviously taking a bit more control and going Monday to Friday to then going, you know what, this isn't for me either. Like, I want more control over where my life and, and sort of career path is heading. So I think it takes time to know, you know, exactly what sort of direction you'd like to go in and, um, I think for coaches starting out, you, you've almost got to go through that journey yourselves and see if that's the right journey for you. Because a lot of people may just want that structure in place and and know where they're going from Monday to Sunday. Whereas, yeah, as you know, in this world, like yeah, your week can be thrown upside down by you know one call or one decision. So I think if you're prepared to do that, then um, then I think yeah, you know, you you'd probably want to gear your career towards maybe working for yourself or working privately. Um. I know, again, when we had this first podcast, I don't think I had my first born then. I can't remember. I don't think I, I don't should. Know. I'll have to check, I'll check the date. The <laughs> <laughs> I should know, but I can't remember when the podcast was, so don't, don't hate me on that one. But I don't feel like I had Arlo at the time. And I think as soon as he comes along, like everything changes. Your whole perspective on your, your working life and your personal life changes. And I've got a second on the way next year, so... Uh, your perspective changes even more then because, uh, as I say, that's probably where, as you mentioned, your, your personal sort of goals align with your your career goals. And probably a lot of times as you get older, it's geared around family and, and spending more time with them. Yeah, I think tying in with that as well, you talked about productivity and being working on a laptop up at night and yeah. in the hours where... But that's a really important point, isn't it? Because when, you, when you're working for yourself and you see the jobs list that you've got to do for the day. You want to be productive. It's not just as simple as opening an Instagram account, getting people coming to train with you, and then you train them, you switch off your phone, and that's it. Done at the end of the day. There's a lot more to it, isn't there? Yeah. So for you, for you, I know, exactly. If in, in terms of, like, productivity, do you have anything that you do on a day-to-day basis that, that keeps you, like, in line with what you're trying to achieve? Mine is probably just setting up my working calendar from uh, the week before. So I'll aside a certain amount or set aside a certain amount of time each day to certain tasks. Um, and I'll do my best to stick to those as well. So whether that's, I don't know, two hours worth of, you know, business admin, for example, um, an hour's worth of like social media, for example, because, you know, as as a business owner, I would think the way the world's going, like you've got to dedicate that time to the social media aspect. I think if if you're a grown business and you rely on a lot of you know eyes coming into your business from social media, then you that's a part of your job. Unfortunately, like no one probably likes to do it as such, but I think it's just as important as any aspect of your business. Um, and the way the world's moving, like it's huge. Um, so that is probably my way of dealing with it is setting out my calendar from. Uh, from the Sunday and just sticking to those times. Obviously, I'll have me one-to-ones in person around there. 
um, down to the smallest detail of putting in travel to and from the gym to go and deliver a coaching session, to planning my own, but to planning my own training sessions, setting aside an hour each day because, again, a big part of why I wanted to to, to launch my own business was to have freedom to actually look after myself. Yeah, and to go, you know what? Every day I'm going to set aside an hour where I'm going to train myself because it's probably something that I've neglected over the past four years. Um, probably down to like work and schedule, and you know, if you if you're going to ask me to get up at six o'clock in the morning to train, I'm not going to do it. Um, but then by the end of the day, it's six o'clock at night. I'm also not going to do it. So trying to fit that sort of training and looking after yourself was was a big part of why I wanted to to take control of that as well. This is a bit of a selfish question on my part. I know you've got, like you said, a young family. Yeah. How do you factor what will be the kids in um, into that picture as well in terms of time with them? Because I, I personally have this real issue with myself where I'm like, I don't want to be working when they're here. Yeah. I don't want to be seen to be working all the time. Yeah. Even though you've got loads to do, when the kids are playing, I want to be present. I want to be involved. Yeah. How have you found that? I found it, again, selfishly because... I was able to take control of my working structure. I was like, right, okay, I'm going to keep Arlo off one day a week. And that's going to be my day with him where I'm not going to work at all. And I'm going to, you know, keep him off nursery for that day. So with that in mind, I was already spending more time with him than I ever was working Monday to Friday. Um, you know, it's like, like when you get them from nursery, it's it's absolute chaos just trying to get them fed to bed. So I don't know how much quality meltdowns. <laughs> I don't know how much quality time you actually spend with them overnight. It's probably just me losing my head the majority of the time. Um, <laughs> but again, trying to trying to be really regimented of a weekend, and you know, I may work on Saturday morning, for example. But then once midday comes, the laptops away, and I'll spend the rest of the weekend with them. Um, but again, that's that's down to your productivity in the week to make sure that everything that you want to get done gets done and doesn't spill over into the weekend. Um, but there are some, you know, uncontrollables, um, which will probably influence you. You working more of a weekend, which can't be helped. But at the same time, it's it's just one of the things that, as a as a business owner, has to be done. Because as I say, if you don't do it, then it carries over into the week after, and it, your to do list goes from five to ten things in the space of a couple of days. So, um, so that's probably you know my sort of way of combining is you know keep them off nursery, which is a nice luxury to be able to do. Um, you know having control over that day in the week where you know there's no work involved and it's just it's just me and him, which is great. Yeah, I think the whole work life balance is definitely a sliding scale, isn't it? I don't think there is a balance there necessarily that you can stick to all the time, but it's a constant yeah. sort of sway of your yeah. mind going on to work, your mind going on to family, or whatever yeah. it's going to be. I think that's more real, isn't it, in terms of day-to-day? -day? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, you can, again, you can set aside family time on your calendar, but I guarantee that that family time doesn't always exist. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think your partner will, again, yours probably the same, like, they'll, they'll fully understand the reasons as to why you're doing it. It's to provide best opportunities for, for yourselves as a family, ultimately. Um. So I think yeah, it's very much like a short-term sacrifice for a long-term sort of goal. So that's the way we look at it. Um, me and Mrs. actually working two jobs at the minute as well, so I don't even see her throughout the week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, But I'll, I'll see her for nine months straight when she has the baby, which will be enough. So um... <laughs> Definitely, mate, definitely. I want to just get back into the work with players now. Yeah. And 
we've talked a lot on the podcast and some of the conversations that we've had around players seeking out private coaches, getting that extra work, wanting the individual approach to the programming, not the cookie cutter sort of whiteboard programming that they would maybe suggest that might go on at some certain clubs. Yeah. But what I wanted to speak to you about is, okay, players want the individual approach. That is why they're going to seek someone out. We've sort of come to that conclusion. But what yeah. do you feel or what have you seen? Is there any trends where players are coming to you and you're like, right, you're doing this, you're doing this bit of the club, but you're not doing this, this and this. Is there anything that sort of stands out? Um, I would say just the detail that you can, you can give them on a one-to-one basis, which you can't get at a club due to numbers and limited time etc um that's what i've found in terms of like players come to see one-to-one it's it's that extra bit of detail that you, you you probably don't get at the club and it's not to say that the staff don't give them that detail but i think in a team environment it's probably just lost a little bit in terms of like the communication side of things and as i say in terms of like time constraints in a club setting you know you you might have half an hour in the gym before you go outside, how much of that is actually spent developing something, I'm not sure. Um, And then obviously when you're out on the pitch, it's a case of getting the boys warming into the session straight away, or girls, um, within like a 10, 15 minute warm up, and then how much time you were able to dedicate and give someone feedback on something that they may be struggling with in that period, probably not at all. Um, You know, you're there to essentially do a job on the pitch and it's preparing players to go into the session. I don't know how much of that time can actually be spent on improving someone's mechanics or dialing to detail around someone, how someone accelerates or changes direction, for example. Um, so I feel as though that's where I've seen a lot of players come uh, and work with myself. Obviously, I get a lot of injured players still coming uh, to myself as well. And I think that's just because, you know, they may have, they may have had, again, different experiences at the club where they may have seen progress being really slow or um, reoccurring injuries where they're just looking for a different set of eyes to to give them an answer and trying to help them, basically. Um, so I've had really good like success stories with some players who have come in, but I think that is just down to being able to dedicate more time to that individual, to be honest, um, and to to not be as rushed to get him in and out the building on, on certain days and having that flexibility and freedom around around their week to be able to give them the perfect week in terms of what they need to make sure that their sort of schedule is, is designed around their journey and where they're looking to go, essentially. Um, I think a lot of players will come to you for, for working on their weaknesses because I don't think a lot of players will actually recognise those weaknesses themselves. Um, and when I say that, it's you. You know the the typical team structure is you you'll test at the beginning of the preseason, potentially test at the end of preseason, and then um, how much of that testing is actually then used to design and develop individuals' physical capabilities? I'm not sure. A lot of it is, if we're being completely honest, and we've all been in that team structure as well, where it's probably impossible impossible to try and you know give twenty individual programs out. Um, so you probably or the players are probably missing something within their own program, which is going to contribute to them not developing as an athlete. So, I, I've got a few examples that stick out. Is I had a rugby league player come to me, and his sort of reason for coming to me was he wasn't injured, but he was like, well, actually, he he didn't know this until we actually 
um, assessed him and, and brought it to his attention. But he was, as a rugby athlete, you know, you should be able to try and cut off both sides in terms of giving you more scope and more opportunities as as an athlete. Um, he, he would always favour one side. So we sort of looked at some of his tests and scores and how he moved and identified this was why he probably wasn't as confident at doing it off this side. So for him, it was about, yes, working on certain elements of strength and, and power and elasticity, but then also just giving the movement sort of uh, framework to be able to improve that cutting strategy to actually go and express himself in the field, which then once he unlocked that sort of, or pushed past that barrier, should I say, he, he opened up his rugby game where he could then cut both ways. And he'd be sending me clips so that we can go look at look what I can do now. And don't think that he couldn't do it. He just didn't recognise it was a flaw in his own sort of movement game. We've posted some great content on the community over the, these last couple of weeks. We've got a webinar by Aaron Hull, who's a Premier League Academy physio. That is called Load Considerations for Academy Footballers. We've also uploaded a presentation by Doncaster Rovers Academy Sports Scientist Harry Hurst that is called Insight into a Category 3 Academy. And we've added a special discount on the sports uh, LinkedIn for Sports Practitioners course by James Malone. So if you're on the community, make sure you go and check that out. That is in the benefits section of the community. It looks like a brilliant course on how practitioners can utilize LinkedIn. And we've got some really exciting stuff to come over the next few weeks as well. We've got a Power BI presentation by a League One First Team Sports Scientist. We've got a another presentation by a League One Physio around ethos and principles of a performance medical department, as well as a speed development presentation by a private performance coach. So loads of stuff to come. Make sure you go and check it out. If you're not already a member, go to footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab and sign yourself up there to a free 30-day trial. After your 30-day trial, you become a paid member. You get access to our members' WhatsApp group, but there's always great discussion going on. And yeah, you become a full member of our community. So go and check it out, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab and get yourself signed up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Alan Jordan. Yeah, that's really interesting. How far off do you think or, or is it possible when you're in the club setting from your experience to break it down into that detail i think it is but it's about probably keeping players beyond their normal training structure so what i mean by that is you're probably going to, have to keep players behind after their team sessions to go through these sorts of details with them get them in early to go and hone in on these different skills that you're looking for them to implement um and how much of that actually will come from the player I'm not sure of. I think once you're in that team environment, you very much get caught up in your arrival time and your leave time. And it's almost like you don't want to be the last one to leave. Um, You know, footballers, they, they love a half day where they'll be home by one o'clock in the afternoon. If you're asking them to stay beyond that. But then I've also had players going, well, because it's so stressful in that environment and there's a lot going on, it's almost like, they like going home for a few hours, resetting, spending a bit of time with the family, and then, all right, okay, I'll go out and spend another hour or two working on myself in the afternoon. So I think it's just down to the individual's mindset. I think it's the opportunities are there for sure, but I think it takes a lot of effort and resources to do that outside of the team, uh, team training structure. 
It's interesting you say that, though, isn't it? Because uh, I don't know if you've watched the Beckham documentary. I finished but... it last night, actually, yeah. So when they were talking about that and they said, I think it was Neville possibly that was being interviewed, and he was basically saying that the training finished and then Beckham's session, his session then started because he got the bag yeah. of balls out, started practicing his free kicks, and um, that's when it, the real technical session started. For him. Yeah. I suppose that's the same, isn't it? Like if there's yeah. physical stuff to be worked on, that is the point to yeah. the point of time to yeah. be taken advantage of. Yeah, and this is a big thing I talk with with a lot of the players that I work with is outside outside of those two hours of training, potentially three to four times a week, there's so many opportunities throughout that week to actually develop as a, as an individual. It just yeah. depends where you want to spend your time. I think there's so many opportunities. I Even if you're a starter and it's a one-game week, you're telling me there isn't enough opportunities within that working week to actually go and work on yourself. If you're a substitute who potentially has only played 30 minutes, there's no nothing stopping you going out and doing a good session the next day. Um, international breaks. What will boys rather do? Go away for a few days, or actually stay back and work on themselves. I, I know the answer to that, but it's trying to encourage the players to, so sort of sway them away from that and actually go. Well, actually, I'm going to use this opportunity now to to work on myself because I need to develop X, Y, and Z. Um, because you don't, I say, the careers are, are very short. The last thing that I think most footballers would want to do is get to the end of the career and go. I didn't do this or I should have done that. Um, why not make the most of the opportunity you've got while um while you're fit and healthy and you're able to do so? Tying in with that, when you get a player to come and work with you and they're at a club, they're on a full-time contract, so a full-time program, full they've got the gym program set, hopefully as as individualized as they can yeah. at that club. How easy do you then find it when the player is coming to you X amount of times per week? in terms of getting this work into them? Because it's it's essentially extra work, extra load that's going into them on top of their programme, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that's why communication with the athletes is is paramount, to be honest with you, to know what they've done leading into that session when they do come and see you. So if you've you've only much got to write your programme in pencil because you may have something planned, they turn up on the day, well, you know what, I've done a heavy strength session yesterday. Okay, well, let's focus on your movement today or let's focus more on some elements of strength that you maybe never covered within that session. That's still going to push the needle forward for you, but isn't going to, you know, isn't going to be detriment to what you're doing going to train the next day or, you know, um, effective recovery from the training, et cetera. So I think it's, it's very much about being able to, uh, to program on the spot and having a program in mind, but having that in pencil because a lot of variables may change. Um, but also looking at again, I'm an open book. So if the club staff wanted to speak to me and go, this is what we've worked on with this player. Can you potentially leave this out of their program? But happy to do with whatever. Then I think that communication line is really important with the club. Um, and again, it builds trust. It builds, you know, a bit of builds a bit of buy-in from from the club staff that you're not just someone trying to trying to program I know better or I know more than you and this is what they need. It's I think it's got to be a collaborative process in a full-time structure. Um, even in a part-time structure, you know, the, the certain elements where they will get gym sessions. So I think that communication line is always open from my side. You know, the staff may not always get in touch with me, which is fine, but um, as long as they know that communication line is open, I think that's, that's a really important thing to consider. So with your process of getting a player in, you do your initial 
monitoring, you sort of see some areas, like you just mentioned with the rugby player, yeah. you're seeing areas there, right? This is a key thing that we need to work on. And that will obviously break down into a lot of different other aspects. Will you then take that and be like, right, this is going to inform my programming? Yeah. But if the club then puts puts in, right, can you leave this out the programme because we're going to take care of that? Is that just essentially a, right, we'll cross that off, we're going to not work on that, we're going to work on all these other things that you've got? Down. I think so. Yeah, I think, again, in that sort of, in that scenario where the players are already doing an awful lot in a full-time structure, you don't want to lay it on too much, but I think what you do want to potentially try and implement is something that is still going to improve them, but not tax them. Um. And I think having that positive relationship with the club staff is is important to make sure that, you know, you, you're getting that buy-in and it makes life easy for the player as well, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Um, you know, you, you want that player to be open and transparent with the club and with yourself. So I think having that communication line and being transparent will just enable both sides of the party. Because again, the, the most important person all this is, is, is the individual, is the athlete. It's not me. It's not the club. It's it's getting the best out of the individual. So I think as long as you've got that that person's interests, you know, at the forefront of of your mind, I think you'll you you can never go too wrong. And I don't think you'll you know you, you'll sort of make too many bad judgment bad judgments based off um based on you trying to push your sort of thoughts and programming aspects on that individual. Definitely. Yeah. And that was echoed in, obviously, just on the Training Ground Guru conference and spoke with Tony Strudwick, Dave Carroll and Tom Little. And we touched on this and that was definitely what they were mentioning as well. The transparency was one of the most important things from both sides. Something that has to be accepted by practitioners because probably more players are going to go and seek out individual work. But their big thing, especially from Tony, I know he spoke about it before, is that transparency. And I think that's really important. And I'll, I'll Pleased that you've sort of echoed it as well. Um, another area I wanted to touch on, you mentioned about sort of your socials and the work that you're doing. I'm absolutely loving all the stuff on your D-cell work at the moment that you're doing with players and the, and the information that you're putting out as well. It wasn't too long ago we had Damien Harper and Gareth Sanford on the podcast talking about where the game's going and the changes that are, that are happening in the game and the, this increase in, in D-cell work from the game model and all the rest of it. So I wanted to touch on... Firstly, initial thoughts on deceleration, improving deceleration for players, and then maybe diving into some programming around that as well. Yeah. Well, listen, it's a tough act to follow when, you're, when you've had Damon Harper on me, so I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, yeah. I, you know, I was lucky enough to, to go to the Sportsmith Conference uh, with Damon Spoke, so really love his stuff. And along with like the likes of Tom DeSantos and some of my old lecturers at Salford, Paul Jones, et cetera, who've got lots of research in the change direction area. Um, but my initial thoughts on deceleration for, for athletes is it's probably a neglected area. Um, and when I say neglected, I think across the board in terms of what they're doing in the gym to obviously give them the tools to be able to go and decelerate effectively outside. Because I would say that the deceleration component probably limits a lot of players' true max velocity or true acceleration speeds because essentially they know they can't slow down as well as they should be able to, um, which again could contribute to a lot of the injuries that we see, a lot of non-contact injuries um, based on players' ability not being able to slow down and 
um, not being able to change direction effectively based on the inability or lack of strength around certain areas to, to do so. I think movement plays a huge part in that process as well because I'm, I'm quite vocal on the the majority of players doing the strength side okay. When I say okay is, I think I said this in your lab on the last podcast, like footballers, they're not strong athletes. Like if we, if we look at their low body strength markers, I would say the majority of footballers will be classed as average uh, in terms of their strength markers. You get the few outliers who are extremely strong. But they do that side of things really well in terms of lifting and whatever else. But it's that sort of bridge between what they're doing with regards to their strength to them being exposed to certain movements and working on their deceleration capabilities out on the field. Um, and again, a lot of that may be just reduced by inhibition um, in terms of their inability to to load through certain muscles or load through certain joints. Um, it's just affecting how they can potentially stop. Um, and that goes right across the chain. You know, you're not just looking at the lower limbs, but looking at their trunk and their upper body when they are changing direction or decelerating. I think uh, a lot of that is is down to their again, just inability to recognise what a deceleration should look like. And I'm not looking at the perfect model, by the way. I'm looking at a bandwidth of movements around deceleration and what is acceptable and what's efficient. Um, we're quite fortunate now that, you know, we've got the use of AI where we can actually look at the deceleration qualities in the field. So it's something that we look at is using AI, looking at, you know, just a 180 uh, change direction test, but looking how confident they are performing that task. And we're not saying that because they're lacking um, ability to change direction in a close setting. It means that they can't go outside and do it in, in the field naturally. But what we will be able to identify is certain things along the strength, eccentric strength, and just movement capabilities within that task that we can really focus on improving and giving them the confidence to go out and express themselves as well. So would you start, you said there about um, that test, but also would you start essentially with the end in mind by looking at video um, of them performing as well and looking for potential energy leaks and areas that you can target? Do you mean in like a, a game-based scenario or are you looking at? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You you can look at clips, but again, I think a lot of the times where players will naturally perform that task not knowing how they've done it. So if you ask them to recall how they perform that skill. I think the majority wouldn't actually be able to tell you how because it just becomes so natural and it's, it's pretty instinctive. But I think when you sort of layer back and, and actually break down how you do change direction or how you do decelerate, I think that's where you sort of find leaks in that, in that movement system in terms of how they actually perform that task. And I don't think it's until you actually review the footage with them and go, oh, this is what you're lacking in this area. Um, whether it's you know you're not you're not you know using your quads enough when you're slowing down, you're very hip dominant. So is that down to a movement strategy, or are you just lacking eccentric strength around the hip and knee to actually tolerate those loads? But also, are you confident at going through that joint to slow down? Um, so that's sort of the approach that we look at is using that sort of that test in itself, not just that one solely, but we look at different tests but that one is a really useful one in terms of giving us as much information around how that individual can perform a task at speeds in a really controlled setting so if they can't do it in a controlled setting 
you can probably bet a lot of those deficiencies will exhibit when they're out on the field in a, in a game setting as well. I love how you brought up confidence there quite a few times because I think that is really important, isn't it? Because I always use the analogy of a Ferrari with faulty brakes or a Ferrari yeah. with no brakes, that you can have a really quick player, can't you? But if they haven't got that confidence to slam the brakes on and reset, re-accelerate at a certain time, then it's lost, isn't it? That that yeah. speed is lost. Yeah, and I, I think, as I said this before, I think their true speed will sometimes be limited by their inability to brake and change direction. Yeah. Um, so it probably works both ways is... You know, it's it's counterproductive when they do speed up because they can't slow down. But then they probably hold themselves back a little bit, knowing that they can't slow down well enough. Um, yeah. So how much of that true acceleration speed is actually lost due to the inability to slow down? So when you have done that initial process of going through the monitoring, you've looked at the the footage, you've done your, your 180 tests, you've maybe even done some strength tests and, and yeah. seen some of the areas that you need to develop. Where does your programming go from there in terms of do, do you then set out a model of right, we're going to work for this across six weeks or whatever it's going to be, and this is going to be the program? How do you what are the steps you take from there? So again, it's probably just a very generic and um, progressively based approach to that. So if it's something along the lines of where they're lacking around their uh, knees when they're decelerating, then we'll focus on a lot of knee dominant movements. Um, with regards to like deceleration. Um, so looking at exposing them to some of the heavier with increased time with the tension and um, velocities, right across the spectrum to where, towards where they're working at high velocities and being asked to react much quicker around around the knee, for example. Um, so it's probably that sort of continuum that I take, but then also dialing down on how they perform that task. Um, and expose them to some exercise in the gym that will ultimately help them feel more confident at being able to do that task out on the field. So if we're looking at someone's or someone's lack of, you know, deceleration during their anti and penultimate foot contacts, it's because they're probably not, you know, producing those breaking forces uh, during that last contact, which is done obviously limiting them on their final foot contact because they're spending too long transitioning from their from their breaking action to their reacceleration action. So we will look at certain things like um, horizontal deceleration tasks, whether that's uh, with perturbations or looking at some overspeed breaking, breaking tasks as well, whether that's a band or a cable, um, but really looking at their ability to to perform those actions under higher velocities with high loads as well. Um, so hopefully that answers some of what you what you were looking for. Definitely. And I, what I would say is people need to go and check it out because you put loads of examples especially on your Instagram. And there was one I saw today. I don't know if you posted it today. I can't get my head around this algorithm, but um, <laughs> I saw the, the one that you did today, like the, the reactive one. Um, so a lot okay. of velocity onto the box. So that's the sort yeah. of thing that you're talking about, isn't it? But building up, not necessarily starting at that point, but yeah. building a player up to that point. So I think for people to actually see that visually will yeah. help them in terms of, the, especially the banded work as well, the overspeed stuff. I think it'd be really important to see that. Um yeah. In terms of like joint angles, positions, uh, you're, you're very creative on some of the drills that you're coming up with. How do you, is that a case of just trial and error? Just getting in the gym, getting your hands dirty and trialing it? Or where you go, how are you going I, about that? It's probably looking at like uh, the model from what we want to look at on the pitch and certain muscle groups and joints that we're looking to, to try and target out in the field and trying to scale that back into the gym, for example. So, 
I think a forgotten muscle group with, within like deceleration is, is the slayers and the central components of the slayers when the foot actually is the first thing to hit the floor. So if you're lacking a lot of eccentric strength around the slayers, I guarantee you're going to place a lot more stress on the knee, for example. Um, and then if you're not using your knee effectively, then you're probably, you know, producing a very hip dominant strategy, um, yeah. which again, isn't beneficial for, for that task because your knee will be pretty extended. And we all know what happens when that, when, when that knee is extended. Um, so I think it's just looking at the movements themselves on the pitch and then trying to, you know, trying to target certain joints or muscle groups within the components of deceleration. So the one that you were talking about is very much like a, a long lever hamstring breaking action. Um, so it could be used more for like upright sprinting and, and trying to target the hip and knee using some quasi isometric work, um, but again, as you mentioned, it's it's building the athlete up to that ability to be able to do that um, at those higher velocities. I wouldn't expect someone to do that who's pretty poor at, at decelerating around the hip and knee. So you could potentially look at using some of you know Natera's work around the hip iso holds um, and working their yield and strength up to a point where then you're transferring it down to overcoming isometrics. And then obviously progressing on towards more uh, eccentric isometric contractions uh, where you're looking at that reactive element as well. How do you, pro so what does it look like in terms of a, a programme on a certain day? Because if you say you've got some max strength, you want to be working with that player, you know you want to be getting some of this D-cell work in as well, you might have a few other bits and pieces you want to get into the programme. How does that programme then look in terms of how much time does this take yeah. in yeah, I mean. yeah, no, of course. And I think microdosing is really important in that aspect because I wouldn't expect that players just have one hit a week and be able to develop that skill. So it's something yeah. that we probably look to include within like their pre-activation sessions throughout the week. Um, so if they are someone who's in a full-time or part-time schedule, then there'll be a few exercises that they may be performing two or three times a week that are pretty low fatigue, low cost, but again, still looking at pushing that needle for them on a weekly basis. And then obviously your bigger rocks that they may be doing after training with regards to like the the higher loads or more taxing exercises, they'll be doing further away from the game. Um, and again, looking at reducing that energy cost as the game approaches, but then still looking at, you know, working on some high velocity base work closer to the game. Um, so I think that's how I normally like to work is they'll have a primary focus, whether that is improving their, their breaking or their movement within that breaking action. And then subcategories focusing on obviously all the other rocks, such as like the, the global strength, for example, and looking at some areas of robustness. Um, but I think it's impossible to try and improve everything at once. But I also think there's there's still opportunities in season where you can still improve certain qualities and focus on those qualities. Like I know you're not wanna you don't wanna block paradise in season, um, because you know, you you'd be missing a lot if if you've done that. But I still think there's there's areas for a primary focus where you can improve their breaking season while still staying on top of other aspects of of their strength and power. Um, but I think the use of microdosing is is really important in that as well. Um, and a big thing I try and encourage with players is it's no good doing all this stuff in the gym if you're not going to go and try and apply it in warm ups, in sort of physical games, uh, in one v one actions. I think it has to be that understanding from the player that you can't just expect us to do it in a gym setting and not apply out in the field. Like, yeah. you're just going to be clashing heads there. There's not going to be any improvement. So, 
I think that's that's really important for the individual to understand is as I say is it's got to be that transfer of skills and strength that they've been working on to to apply it in their setting and you've not got eyes on that you know you can only encourage that and and take their word for it but um it'd be a lot of time wasted if if they didn't try and apply those skills brilliant mate some great information there it's not a topic that we've obviously we've covered it with date in the podcast with Damien but I don't feel like we've gone into as much detail as, we have, as, as you have today, so I appreciate you doing that. Alan, just give us some um, contacts for anyone that wants to, like I said, go and check out the Instagram or the work that yeah. you're doing. Where would you direct people? So my personal Instagram is Jordan underscore P2BE. Um, and then the business page is Peak2BEelite underscore global. Um, in terms of Twitter, I'm not really big on Twitter anymore. I've sort of joined the Freds, the Freds crew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. I'm not, I'm not as active on it anymore, but I like the concept of it. Um, I still look at Twitter for like on match days and stuff like that. I think you can't be Twitter for the football. Um, but for like Freds, I like Freds at the minute. Um, LinkedIn is another one. I'll be honest, I'm not as active on LinkedIn anymore. Um, the spam messages are getting there ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so I'll try and, but again, it's it's one that I do get a lot of questions on. I, what I would say is I do get a lot of students asking um questions, which I'm always open to to answer. And I think you know I think it's important to recognise I've been in that position, and I probably think back to when I was in that position, I probably didn't do that enough to be honest with you. It's just reaching out yeah. to to practitioners, and I think it's a it's a healthy way of learning. Um. You know, I'm not gonna not answer you. Know, I'll definitely it might not be straight away, but I'll certainly give you the time where I'll try and help you out with whatever sort of question you might have. Um, and the same goes for obviously, you know, other practitioners or or even players who may be watching the podcast. Just a quick one before I let you go. How do you? What do you feel like the biggest difference is between Twitter and Threads? Oh. Like in terms of professionally, what are you taking away from using Threads more? I think there's there's more information to be digested on there because people go into a bit more detail. Um, yeah, just with a more work out and stuff like that. Yeah, I think because because of the thread sort of idea where you're linking multiple messages or multiple posts together, I think you will get a lot more out of that. And it seems a lot more natural as well where people are just speaking rather than yeah. trying to make it so formal on Twitter. Um, and I, that's what I like about it. I feel like you can just have a verbal sort of verbal diarrhea moments and just spit out anything and you're almost not looking for that I don't know reassurance or 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 sort of the likes and stuff like that you can just put out there and I don't think it really affects anyone but people are being openly honest on there it's, it's sort of the 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 idea I've got from it initially yeah I love it love it I'm gonna have to start using it more Alan, stop, man, mate. Thank you very Absolutely. much for coming back on. We won't leave it as long next time. We'll get you back on, and uh, maybe on the year anniversary of the of the business and see what's going on in in this next six months. But yeah, thank you very much for your time, mate. Cheers for having me. Cheers, Ben. It was great to catch up with Alan. I hope you enjoyed the episode with him. Uh, like I say, go and check out the first episode we did as well. That was obviously at a slightly different point in his career, but still you'll take plenty from that one. And make sure to go and give him a follow. His company is Peak to Be Elite. So they're over on Instagram. And I know he said he doesn't use Twitter that much, but they are on Twitter as well. Um, in terms of takeaways on this one, I think one of the things initially is that 
don't underestimate the opportunities that come your way and the relationships that you could build early on in your career, especially with people in all sorts of different roles because you never know where they're going to come back. I know Alan's had a few opportunities recently that have come from people that he knew earlier on in his career that he developed that relationship with. So, And that happens time and time again. So really, it's a really important takeaway for people to consider. Um, time management Time management was another big one, into, especially when you're running your own business. But I think anyway, just blocking out time, like he said, not overlooking, because another thing I've wrote down is coach health, not overlooking your own training, your own personal time, your own hobbies, that all has to be factored in, factored in around your work. Um, the power of word of mouth, especially for a private practitioner, and that works both ways as well. That could be positive and negative. So but you do, that shows that the quality of work that needs to be done and that will get passed, whether that's through players or coaches or interactions with practitioners at clubs. You're, you're your own brand, essentially. It's your personal brand and how you represent yourself is is really important. It's a, it's actually a few discussions I've had with people recently that we need to be really focusing on that and all the work that we do and everything that we put out has to fall in line with the quality of work that we want people to be to perceive our work as. So I think it's really important. Um, the other stuff around deceleration that I think was really important, so microdosing, the importance of the soleus I wrote down as well, and also just generally the creative nature of Alan's work in, in terms of drill design. And um, I hope you got a good insight into the way he thinks around um, some of the attributes or um, personal and um, sorry, physical qualities he's trying to develop when designing those drills as well. And I, I would urge you, I said after we stopped recording, I will tell people to go and check out the Instagram because he puts out some great stuff on there. And some of the things that he spoke about in the podcast, which is probably quite hard to verbally describe, will make a lot more sense over on there. So make sure you go and check that out as well. But again, thank you for listening to the podcast. We've got to episode 260, which is pretty crazy. I would just say finally, go and check out our sponsors doing some brilliant work. Hytro, Rezzle, and also the Good Prep. Go and at least give them a follow over on socials and show them some love. I really would appreciate it. And we'll be back next week in episode 261.